My name is Josh. I get to preach today. One quick announcement. Tomorrow, November, is that, what's, we got a slide for it. Tomorrow, Veterans Day, we're going to do a cross raising. Yeah, that's the one. At 9 a.m. So there's a giant steel cross laying down currently on our land. Tomorrow is the day it's going to be raised and put in place, and we are invited to be there. We are told by the construction workers 9 a.m. is when they're going to do it. So if you get there at 9.02, it's going to be the biggest disappointment of your life. So get there 8.55, and we will watch that cross be raised. That should be there for generations and generations as a picture of why this church exists. So we get to do that tomorrow. It's tied to this series that we're in. We are here. We are here. Anybody done with their Christmas shopping already? Raise your No? Are you kidding me? Not a single person? Somebody thought about what you're going to buy for Christmas at all yet? Okay. Wow. I've just started to think, and I have a couple kids, and one of my kids is easy because he dreams big, and he tells me exactly what he wants. The first thing he ever did when he learned to write was write out a Christmas list. (laughs) What do you want? And it's always just something extravagant. I think I want a house. I'm like, a new house for us? No, a house for me. (laughs) Elijah, that's not a possibility. My other kid is the exact opposite. He does not dream. He does not see past his nose. Whatever room he's in, and you ask him, what do you want as a gift, it's going to be something from that room he's currently in. (laughs) Roman, what do you want for Christmas? I think a clock. (laughs) Are you sure? Yeah, we go in the garage. Roman, what do you want for Christmas? It'd be like a tool or something. I don't know. He just doesn't dream. And there's various levels of that in this room. And this series is a big dream series. Ten years from now, nobody's thinking about ten years from now. What we want to be is the best friend this community has. This is a big vision. Here's our dream. We want to become the best friend our community has. And I realize that in this room, some of us naturally dream big. Some of us haven't thought about what we're going to eat when we leave here. We get that. But as the church, as the people of God, we are called to love God with everything. All of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. And this is just trying to be faithful to that as a church. We want to love God with everything. Well, what does that look like as a church? Ten years from now, we are going to become the best friend our community has. That's our vision. We are dreaming big. And here's what we're going to call people to, to a re-encounter with the missionary mindset of Christianity. And Luke talked about this last week. We've got five commitments we're going to have people sign up for. December 9th is going to be our commitment day, but we're going to ask you to come. Some of you already do that. That's the easiest thing ever to check off. Come to a Sunday and join an RC, a small group. Next thing, going. Going as a missionary to your circles of influence. Not as a great, well-read missionary, just a missionary. A person with a different mindset as to why you exist in the circles that you exist in. And then invite in those circles and wherever you are, invite people to experience the life of church here at Redemption Gateway. Not because we need more people, but because people need Jesus. And then we're going to call you to serve on a ministry team if you're not currently serving. And then we're going to call you to give financially to support this mission. We are in this cultural moment. Our church is about to be 10 years old. We're heading into adolescence. We exist in this part of town that seems to have a lot of people who aren't from here. It's a disconnected, lonely section of town. Busy, hectic, frazzled. And on top of all that, the way people view the church is not what it used to be. I don't believe in glory days and dreaming about what it used to be. But the reality is, church 
Jesus and Christians are not people's default mode on what they think about when they need help. That ship has sailed. So we could sit here and lament and whine about it, or we can strive to be the best friend our community has. Now, it leads me to this. Now we ask, how do we get there? Currently, we are here at next one. How? How do we get there? Now, there's a tension in being a part of the teaching team. Luke, Seth, and I teach on Sundays. And the, the thing in my head sometimes is I can't downplay the other guys by saying, this is the most important message of this series. Because <laughs> you guys just won't listen to them with the same attentiveness. But... I've taken this to the Lord, and this is the most <laughs> important message of this series. It just is. It's not the most important. Here, it's the foundational piece as to what we do. If we miss this, we miss it. Meaning it's not about us leaving here and all of our strength and might and wisdom and finances and ability and doing this on our own. It's about staying here in this moment and abiding in Jesus and that abiding, that remaining, taking it with us wherever we go. We need to stay close to Jesus. That's what we've been singing about all morning. We need to stay close to Jesus. So here's the big idea I want to walk us through today out of this passage. Our community needs a needy best friend. What do I mean by that? I mean, what this area of town needs from us is for us to be needy. And that's a weird word to use, and I used it intentionally because it rubs us wrong. Like, how many of you guys raise your hand? The best, your most favorite people in your life are the neediest ones. <laughs> like, unless they're 12 and below, we don't like that. And yet what we're going to read is neediness is the root of true Christianity. Here's a, just a quick definition of needy. Just so lacking the necessities of life, very poor. Just so we don't miss it and like try to define it. That's what needy means. A bunch of people who are lacking the necessities of life, very poor. If we don't bring that posture into the community, we will not reach our vision. Fact, lacking the necessities of life. Now, before you think I made this up, I'm going to summarize this whole message in this quote from Jesus, the starting and the ending point, verse 1 and verse 5, and we're going to start with our time. Here's what Jesus says, verse 1. I am the true vine. Verse 5, he ends with this. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, just in your own head, own heart right now, scale of 1 to 10, how true is that of your mindset? Because here's what I realized as I've been preparing this. This is not true of me. And that's scary and a little, even coming up on stage, this, I usually don't have many nerves, but I have nerves because it's not true of me. And I get that. And I read it, and I get what I should believe, but I don't, so we need to believe that more as a group this morning. So that's what we're going to unpack. We need to be needy. 
That's what this passage is about. Let's pray and ask God to meet us here. Jesus, we need you, whether we see it or believe it or feel it at all. Invade this church this morning and make that statement from Jesus true, more true in our hearts than when we walked in, God. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everyone said amen. So here's what I want to do. I want to unpack that big idea just with three needs I see pulled out of this passage. Here's the first need we're going to tackle. Need number one, we lack the goodness God expects and the goodness our neighbors need. We lack goodness. Where do I get that? Verse one, right out of the gate, here's what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Who is Jesus talking to in this moment? It's about Thursday. He dies the next day, rises a few days later. Who is, who's in this moment with him right now? We know? The disciples, apostles, Jewish base. He's talking to Jewish folks, and he says, I am the true vine. And the Jewish people, his disciples, know that word because they hear that word all the time in their holy text. Here's one of them out of Psalm 80. It says this. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the earth. You brought a vine, Israel, out of Egypt. The, one of the main images, if not the, the most prominent image in the Old Testament of Israel, is one of a vine. You're my vine. Flourish, blossom, bear fruit for the sake of the nations. You are my vine. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. It's, a, it's like having a man and his wife and his mother I am his woman. I am his true woman. <laughs> it's an offensive thing. Who's the true Israel? The whole Old Testament says, you're the vine. You're the vine. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. He is Israel. Israel is hoping for this prophetic, profound, powerful king that demolished all the evil forces of the day. What they failed to realize in this moment is, oh yeah, they also were failing at the basic task God had ended, to be the vine, to be the blessing to this earth. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. What does that mean for us? It means Jesus is good and we are not. To the disciples, it meant Jesus looked at them and said, I'm the good one. You are not. My sons and I were driving the other day. We saw this guy getting handcuffed, put on the car. And like, oh, Dad, look, a bad guy. And I said, he's not a bad guy. He's a criminal. He broke a law, so he's going to go to jail. We are all bad guys. Watch your language there, four-year-old Jude. <laughs> We're all bad guys. There's one good guy. Homer Simpson said of the Bible, <laughs> it's full of a bunch of messed up people, except for this one guy. Jude Watt, we're all bad guys, except for this one 
guy who is actually good. Do we believe that? Do we honestly, honestly believe that? We are all bad people. There is one good person. What I love about our church is we have all sorts of people. Old, young, all sorts of demographics. We also have this, Christians and non-Christians. And I hope that's always true of our church because it means we're inviting in everyone. But here's what non-Christians in the room need to hear right now. Jesus says, I'm the good one. And by implication, you are not. So the way you get to Christianity, the way you get to Jesus, the way you get to a right relationship with God and even be a part of a church that has this grand vision to reach this community is not by your goodness because it doesn't exist. I became a Christian at a FCA baseball camp when I was 18 years old. And I'd been building my life on everything you'd expect an 18-year-old boy to build his life on. And God had slowly plucked it away. To use the scripture here, he was pruning me before I knew what that meant. And I'm sitting in a worship service, and somebody unpacks the gospel. Jesus is good, you are not, but if you trust him by faith, you will be forgiven of everything, and he will give you a new life. And I stood there, and I watched, and then we sang songs, and I watched a man holding his baby, this giant football player just holding his baby, and I just cried. I said, that's what I want. I want that relationship. I want my father to hold me despite what I've done. God, I give you my life. It was not the presentation of my resume in that moment that brought me to Jesus. It was the recognition of the stains on my resume that brought me to Jesus. I am the true vine, Jesus says. What does that mean for the Christians in this room? It means the exact same thing. Our goodness is not what everybody needs. Jesus' goodness is what everybody needs. Here's how I just encourage the followers of Jesus in this room, especially you that are calling this place home, want this vision to come to light. You need to picture your life and all the interactions of your life more like a roundabout, less like a stoplight. Here's how I see a lot of Christianity happening. You become a Christian, ticket to heaven, however you use the language, as incorrect as it may be, And now you go back to just trusting your default. And there's moments where you realize, like for guys, it's lust. Like, okay, we get it. We shouldn't be lusting. There's a yellow light, red light. We shouldn't be doing that. But in other areas, politics and all these other ways, interacting with our neighbors, interacting with our spouse, listening to our children, we just still have a green light from our old ways of living. Like, I just keep going about my life this way. And what Scripture says and what Jesus says is, I am the true vine. I didn't find a vine in here. I was the vine. So Christians need to go about their life like they're entering a roundabout in just about every interaction they have. And there's yielding, and there's watching, and there's prayerful anticipation (laughs) about when I should enter. That's what this community needs. A bunch of Christians who leave this place and see their life as a series of roundabouts, not a Red light, yellow light, green light. I've got this thing nailed. I know my sin. I know my good. And I'm going to press the gas and press the brakes whenever I need to. Nope. God, you're the good one, not me. Slow me down as I enter this community. Jesus is the true vine. We need to see him 
as such. What's the next thing we need to see? Need number two, we lack hearts that truly understand good and evil. Where do I get that from? Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Here's what really stinks about coming to terms with this being true. Is it's a perpetual, honest assessment of ourselves that none of us are asking for. Genesis 3, when the fall happens, Adam and Eve sin, even if you don't have a church background, you're aware there was a tree, something happened that shouldn't have happened. Sin enters the world. Bad stuff, evil. But also what that moment shows, God says, when you eat of it, you will know good and evil. Better trend, you will think that you know good and evil. And now you walk through this world assessing what is good and what is evil on your own. That was Adam and Eve's big problem. Like, I I want that. And now they have this assessment in their head that they assume is right. Like, I've realized the biggest, this is a big statement, but one of the biggest frustrations in parenting, it's not all the little one-off fights and broken legs and broken windows and stolen cars and all the stuff that... (laughs) It's fundamentally, when I'm in a moment with one of my kids or a couple of my kids, they don't trust my assessment of the situation. They trust theirs. You're like, stupid kids. We're all the same in this room. We leave here, we're going to log on to Facebook, and we trust our assessment of what needs to be said and what doesn't need to be said. We trust good and evil that our own brain has come up with. And Adam and Eve thought the same thing, and it went bad. There is a reality that this passage talks about that God ultimately has the eyes that see it all. Where, I mean, he talks about fruit in this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And everyone that does bear fruit, he prunes so that more fruit may happen. What's the fruit here? I have like a pinging radar in my head for Christianese. Like people talk in Christianese and it's like, it's like snails on a chalkboard. Fruit is a Christianese word. Non-Christians don't use, I just don't see much fruit in their life. But you talk here Christians, I'm not, this is fine. It's in the Bible. Like I just had this talk with somebody. Do you, what do you think about their Faith, I just don't see much fruit. Well, what's fruit? And as I was preparing, I was like, what is fruit? Like, okay, Google it. You're like, is that all I get out of a preacher? A Google? I could do that. (laughs) What is fruit? And there's, you know, Galatians says there's the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience. All that's that's really good. But I was real, I just realized, like, The passages speak for themselves oftentimes before we have to jump out of them. In this story that Jesus is using, the fruit is what happens in the life of someone abiding. The gardener is our heavenly father. So what is fruit in this story? Fruit is something that is not to be eaten or enjoyed by the branch. It's meant to be used by someone else for their enjoyment, their satisfaction. 
Simultaneously, it's something that the gardener wants to look at and say, that's my fruit. So I just wrote these two things. Fruit is pleasing to the gardener, and it's satisfying to those it feeds. At the same time, vertically, does it please God? Horizontally, does it bless or satisfy others? That's what fruit is across Scripture. Does it please God? Does it bless others? That's the fruit we're talking about. And God says, there are branches that have no fruit that I tear off. And there are other branches that have some fruit that need work done on them so they can bear more fruit. More times where they are honoring God and blessing others. Now again, non-Christians in the room. God's assessment is the assessment. And what this passage says is I don't care how old you are, but there is a real reality to the fact that you could be living your life without any fruit. You could be married. You could be great with your kids. You could be financially wise and set up. And God could look at you as a branch without any fruit. So as we go into our community, what we need is not a bunch of people assuming what they know what is good and what is evil, like our first parents, but asking the question, God, is this fruitful? Is this bearing fruit? Non-Christians, put your faith in Christ, and he will grow fruit on your branch. Fruit is pleasing to God, and it's a blessing to others. As I thought about this, there's probably three types of people in this room just as we think about the fruit. There's the irreligious people, people who can't actually fathom that someone is assessing their work. Like that's offensive that there's a God who's watching this and saying that's fruit, that's not. If you don't like this image, read the rest of the Bible. He brings up other images that says the exact same thing. Sheeps, goats. But the reality that God says who is who, and who is who, based off the work in their life he sees, and the faith or no faith they've placed in him. But we got that sort of, we got these sorts of people, people who think they're producing way more fruit than they really are. Anybody? Just kidding. There's a danger, there's a eternally dangerous aspect to this. Jesus talks about people coming to him at the end. He's saying, I never knew you. And then they talk about their fruit. Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I do these mighty acts? Depart from me. I never knew you. Your branch was never truly abiding in me. So we, we just need an honest assessment. Not a Debbie Downer, but a real assessment that God is watching this. He is the gardener, and he says what's fruit and what's not fruit. Or we got this. People who think they're producing less fruit than they actually are. That's what I want. That's what we want to be. It's the story of the widow. Jesus is kind of watching city life happen. And you got the hustle. Normal city life. Every city's the same. You got, you know, kind of people sizing each other up. Religiously, same thing. And this widow comes and drops two copper coins. Nobody notices it. Not a single person. Except for God. In the person of Jesus. And he gets his disciples' attention. He says, you see that? 
She's done far more than anyone else here today. She dropped the smallest amount in, and in God's economy, there's more fruit in that than anything I've seen today. Why? Because she was living with the basic assumption, how do I please God? How do I bless others? She didn't keep her money out because she knew there was a shifty, criminal sort of leadership in the temple. How do I bless God? How do I bless others? More fruit than I've seen all day. That's phenomenal. That's really challenging and super encouraging at the same time. That's what we want to be. Here's the reality to the series. We are here 10 years from now. We want to be the best friend our community has. There's an assumption built into that that we are not currently the best friend our community has. Like, we wouldn't be having a series about something that's true. There's a natural sort of offensiveness to that. Ten years from now, I want to be in the best shape of my life. What does that mean about me right now? I'm less than the best shape of my life. Well, how do we get there? One of the things we need is a true picture of fruit and how things actually work in God's work. I read a great book over the summer about Navy SEALs called Extreme Ownership. It was really good. You should read it. But his whole point, he just beats the same drum. The best people in the military, the best leaders, the best whatever, have extreme ownership. Meaning there is no passing the blame. Whether you're infantry on the ground or you're the guy at the top, when something happens that shouldn't have happened, you say, I am to blame. So what we need in this room collectively, in this church collectively, is just a realization. We are not the best friend our community has currently because we are not producing the fruit to make that true yet. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Just means we need to be honest about the assessment. We want to get there. God wants us to get there. Our community, if they could articulate, wants us to get there. But right now, we're not there. Which leads us to our last point here. Here's the final point, and we'll spend the most time on this. We lack the ability to do any good on our own. It's another way of saying the Jesus statement we said at the front. We lack the ability to do any good on our own. I love this image because I've just camped out. I love gardening. I love plants. I love trees more than just about anything. And I've loved just sitting in this story. Who is God the father in this story. Remember back to verse 1. Who's God? He's the gardener. Here's what I'm like, what do we want God to be? Functionally, in our lives, who are we living as if God is in this story? And I think at our very best, I think we want God to be the trellis. Like a fixture, He's there, he's supporting, but it's me doing this. And eventually, I'm going to outgrow God in my strong, healthy seasons. But for now, when I'm weak, I just want a structure there in place to help me. That's not what this passage says. That's marginal American Christianity. I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had in the last three weeks with people who, yay God, as my trellis. Absolutely God, as a support. 
not as the lifeblood, the vine, the actual source of everything in my life. I just want a trellis. And God in this is the gardener. Jesus is the vine. He gives no option for him to be a trellis. So I just want to walk last three questions of this last section. What does the branch need to be doing? Because that's us in this story if we're followers of Jesus. What does the branch need to be doing? Go to verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Talking to his disciples. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We are to abide. That's a word that we probably don't use a ton. It means remain, stay. That's why I use the word needy, because the image is a plant that doesn't think about its need. It just naturally is connected. And God is telling us to be this in our life with God. And the only way we want this, pursue this, is if we see our need. We abide. We needily abide in him. Here's what I love about Jesus. He, he's always aware of the false things that are going to bubble up. Verse 3, he addresses one of them that's bubbling up in this room right now. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. That word clean is the same root word prune. So he's talking about pruning. He's like, you've already been pruned, my disciples. Like in an eternal way. What shouldn't be in you has already been removed. You've already been pruned. I'll say it like this. Jesus is aware of the default mode of our hearts. And he's fighting against that desire we all have to step into this church, step into our Monday morning, step into our life, and try to pay God back something we could never pay him back. The best illustration I have of this is seats. So I'm kind of a big deal. I bought my newest car, 2007 GMC Yukon. It's pretty impressive. Anybody have a 2007? They're nice. I mean, it's 11 years ago, but here's something I've never had in a car until this one. Automatic seats. And I have a number one and a number two on my door. One is my wife's setting. Two is my setting. Right, somebody's really impressed with me. They have less... They have less than a 2007. Here's what stinks. The motor's going out. It's like... So me and my wife are playing the ultimate game of musical chairs. Like, which one is it going to die on? I'm not tall, but I tower over my tiny wife. And she likes to be jammed up and then lean back. It's the most awkward. And I like to be way back and like... Pushed way forward. And one of these days, it's going to die on one of these. Terrible game. Here's what Jesus knows about our life. We have a default setting in our mind, in our heart, in our soul on how we interact with God. When we get into the car, we naturally work towards God to pay him back. To please him. In a 
punishment sort of way. Like, here's how it plays. I was talking to one guy who was looking at stuff he shouldn't be looking at. And he said he had a hard time engaging in worship. Why? Because the default mode of the human heart is to pay God back. So how do you pay God back at the moment? Well, you kind of sulk. And we all do that. Across our life, that's how it works. The default mode is not the right setting. And we need to get into our lives, our car, every day and reset. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, remind ourselves, I don't want the default mode. Jesus said, you're already clean. You've already been pruned. All the stuff that would have kept you from me has been removed. Jesus on the cross paid for your sin. His resurrection proved it all that he is God. He is for you. You are fine. You are on my vine now forever. Stop playing the religious game. You're already clean. Enjoy the setting. That's what a branch does. He remains. That's it. What makes it so hard is we don't want that. We want to prove that we should be stuck to the vine. Jesus proved that. He is the true vine. Israel, he is the true vine. Disciples, he is the true vine. Gateway, we are not proving ourselves. We are just going to be pruned by a loving gardener who wants the best for us. Which takes me to our second point. What does God do? He prunes. You see it on verse... For abide in me, I and you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in thee, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. You are the branches. I am the gardener, I am pruning. Here's just the reality to the language of pruning God chose it intentionally. It's not a cakewalk. God is pruning you, God is pruning us. We are not the best friend our community has yet because he still has some pruning to do. We're 10 years old as a church. I love trees. I don't prune them for the first couple of years they're in the ground. Why? Because they're getting established. God has established us. We are a church. We are the light of the world in this part of the valley as one of many churches trying to do the same thing. But he says, I will prune you. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Redemption gateway, God's going to prune us. I can think of two seasons in my life where the most spiritual, emotional, name it kind of growth happened in my life. And neither one of them would I go back to in a million years. You couldn't pay me enough money to sit in that again. And yet I'm on this side of it, and I look back, and I see the pruning. I see what used to be there, what God has removed, and I think, thank you. Thank you. We want that, even though we don't want that. Why do we want it? Last question is, what's the result of these two things happening? God is able to grow more fruit on the branches in this very church. The progression through this is bear fruit, more fruit. Much fruit. You abide in Christ so that he can bear more fruit, more fruit, much fruit in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of this church, for the sake of this community. But it doesn't start with us. I want to end with the same Jesus quote we started with. 
Jesus says, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we believe that? Better question, do we want to believe that more? And the answer has to be yes if we have any chance at seeing this community reached by us. Let's pray.